It's Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs. Let's start the show with Lewis Tennant. Here we go. Guests and interviews that you're looking for with creators, innovators, and so much more. For all episodes and further info, verbalhighs.com is the place to go. All right, welcome to Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs. It's a podcast that's podcasted from a dining room table in Wakefield Street, Auckland. It doesn't roll as easily off the tongue as a kitchen bench in Kingsland, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa, though that might be a muscle and mind memory thing as a result of repetition. I've heard uh, announcers, I think I have announced in the past on a station after leaving another a tagline from Ye Station of Oldie. Uh, always awkward. Anyway, we're in the new spot. I'm set up at the table. I'm wondering when a guest comes over. I very purposely, in the other spot, had it set up like a broadcast environment where you are at quite a, a high-level spot. Um, this is quite sort of low-slung. So it's almost like standing. They were on stools, and I had broadcast mic stands, the ones that you sort of like, for those of you familiar, um, they're kind of like, a, almost like a a mini version of a crane and they have springs and so on on them so they quite softly move but it very much felt like a a, um, a radio environment so I've got a first guest coming over in this new spot tomorrow night and I'm interested in yeah whether the whether the effect of sort of sitting a lot closer together will affect the dynamics we'll wait and see I'm not sure it's as ergonomically pleasing I'm sort of crunched up here in a wee ball doing this Corero. I went to a pinball competition yesterday at the uh, Peck Palace of Pinball in Pukekohe. There's him popping on the mics there, isn't there? With that alliterative um, illustration of the uh, largest pinball collection in New Zealand. We had 72 competitors. I stopped playing for a few months at the Wee Monthly Meets at different houses around Auckland because uh, the competitive side of things, I was getting a little jaded. And uh, I don't have data, but I feel like my game, my game in the comps was uh, was 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 not as flash as it had been maybe six months a year earlier. So I think that paid off. I'm still not in the um, big boy pants league of getting first, second, third, or fourth. I did many years ago when I first found these guys, but I think everyone's just got so much better now. Um, but I did finish ninth out of seventy-two, which I think I think that's you know I'm 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 happy personally. I'm happy inside in my soul, and uh, in the finals, first round, I came up against a gentleman named Hamish from Wellington, I consider myself still a Wellingtonian, living in Auckland, so one of the home team, had to take him out, kneecaps, and then I came up against uh, just the uh, just the best uh, female player in the world currently, which is uh, Dave's daughter, Danielle, it's a really intro of alliteration here, isn't it, Dave's daughter, Danielle, from the uh, Peck Palace of Pinball, Pukekohe, and, you know, you just know you're going to lose, but uh, you go in with a can-do attitude, and she chose, you see, the way this works is there's banks of machines, and the banks yesterday were one of the newer generation, which is vaguely 90s onwards, um, one from probably, what, about 70s to 90s, and then uh, one from before that. That's actually... That's not that accurate, but let's just go with this, okay? Um, it's, it's, it's accurate enough, uh, especially if you're not a pinball person, which probably most of you aren't. Anyway, uh, the bank had Family Guy, which is a stern machine that came out um, when pinball kind of revived again production rise in the 2000s. 
and Harlem Globetrotters, which, as it suggests, is a 1970s or 79 machine. In fact, seems Danny has a 79 thing here because she also chose um, Trident, which is a 79 machine. Uh, nearly got there on the Harlem Globetrotters, probably one wee ball spin off winning, but didn't, and so that is what it is. And then Trident next didn't get the Family Guy because uh, if you win two... Uh, which I didn't, then uh, that's it. But ninth, lovely, right? Okay. Watched a bit of the Who Killed Michael Jackson, or whatever it's called, doco when I got home last night. Seemed terribly exploitative, a little bit depressing. The footage of where he died was really confronting, though, and it just made me reconsider and reflect on just what a tragedy Michael Jackson ended up in so many ways, whatever your stance on all the different things we seem to have been revisiting about him of late. And then the stand-up comedian in me surfaced, and I thought he called himself the king of pop. I wonder how um, the inventor of Coca-Cola thought about that. See, there is there's light and there's dark. Uh, I had a tooth out on Friday. The guy who did the emergency extraction that I talked about in the last podcast said he'd had planning time this time, so the excruciating pain wasn't as much in the days following. I'm quite functional, thank you very much. Uh, But what he had planned was basically because it's such a large tooth and it's at the back, is uh, sawing it in half like a tree stump and then pulling out each half to get out what I also turns out is the very long roots I have, like extracting a mighty tortura from the earth. And the pressure on my muscles and so on around there was so much that it actually strained all the way pretty much down to the bottom of my neck. And I clung on to the uh, dentist chair and my legs were flailing. It was lovely. But um, you can't you can't underestimate good dental health, especially post forty. I am now thousands of dollars and months in, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Go to the dentist, people. I got myself on Spotify uh, because you can do that now if you're a podcast. So I was a bit iffy at the beginning about providing free content to a big organisation like iTunes. I've done it again with Spotify. I should get out of your way. My guest today is Nabil Zuberi who is a, I put out a call a while ago, I wanted to talk to a refugee, Nabil, who I know through work in music and radio, said, hey, I was a refugee, I suppose, do you say you still are? Anyway, he's a refugee, and came from Karachi in Pakistan, and lived in Yemen before moving to England in 1968. So that forms the beginning part of our fascinating conversation about um, that experience, and then we sort of talk other stuff around what, we are interested in because he teaches uh, media film music and the politics of culture at the department of film tv and media studies at the university of auckland so like the show verbal highs podcast on facebook verbal highs on twitter you can subscribe and like and leave a comment on itunes you can stream on spotify all right nabil tell us about yourself matey this is dr tannin's verbal highs I mean, just um, you can talk to me about whatever you want, really. I'm not that bothered. I thought because you were looking to find out particular things, so I just put those down. Yeah, that's what's been in my absolutely mind at the moment. But go ahead, ask me whatever. Okay, I first found out that you're not um, namesakes are a funny thing. You're not the fashion model born in 1993. Have you vanity googled yourself in the past few years? Uh, no, but on Twitter, <laughs> what happened was on Twitter. There is a Nabil Zuberi. I get 
People tweet me because they think I'm the actor in a Pakistani Urdu drama serial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I write back to them and go, it's not me. You got the wrong one. And uh, they just, they keep doing it. Somebody keeps doing it. It happens a little less in yeah. the last few months. But yeah, that was funny. But I don't, uh, I don't vanity Google myself. No. I, I I wouldn't yeah. call. I mean, that's a that's a loaded term. No, no, no isn't I it? don't. Yeah. I um I I Google myself occasionally on account of my relatively new career and what kind oh. of comes on up. Um, who knows how those algorithms work? But I'm safe if students Google me, basically. Oh yeah, I think I am. Yeah, I think I am too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just uh, basically look up Google citations as an academic. You know. Yeah. You kind of want to see if people are reading your work and it gives you a rough idea. But I don't do it that often, you know, like I've just resigned to the fact that very few people read read our work and the more impact is really in teaching and the people that go on afterwards and that you had you real you keep in touch with them and develop relationships and um you get you know, they they tell you that what you did meant something to them or at a certain time in their life. So that's really the, the most reward. And then at conferences and occasionally you do meet people who read something you wrote and you go, you feel that is such an amazing kick. <laughs> Someone know? read it is what basically yeah. what you started there with. But you know, it's funny you say that because I was looking through your work before and um, I clicked on the link to your article about um, dub music that you wrote relatively recently it was open source yeah and what you're saying about people not reading a lot of what academics write um to me is really tied in with the fact that a lot of that information has basically been withheld from the general public for so many years because of the sort of like mafioso stronghold a lot of those big journal organizations yeah. have so i was really glad to see that that work out there open source yeah unfortunately not everything that i do can be that no. it's difficult to do that given the opportunities in academic publishing but more and more journals are open source uh, online you know they're still pre they go through a rigorous peer review process you know like you get people reading a couple of people reading stuff yeah. maybe twice maybe more times for you um and I, yeah, because I, I think it is, we are trapped in a, these big companies have a kind of, well, publishing th- companies control the industry. I, I think of things like, you know, access to information being so different now to, let's say, 15 years ago at, at minimum. And then you've got stuff like measles outbreaks and sort of crazy ill-informed arguments breaking out about things online. And I'm like... This is a strong argument for the canons of academia to be available yeah, to everybody. Yeah. But I think the thing is that since academia is so central and integral to a society, right? Well, education is. Yeah. Then, um, then you know, that's the first one of the first things that um, people will try and monetize or corporate interests yeah. will want to... Uh, regulate and mark, you know, monetize it basically. So we are at, I think we're at a kind of a, not a danger point, oh, a crossroads. Yeah, yeah. Like there's been a long, steady decline. I'm, a, you know, I don't, in, 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 uh, 
public education, right, because of neoliberal policies that want to change the ethos, the way we work. There's uh, a podcast in itself. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I do think there is, there is hope in the kind of uh, openness of much more academic publishing and like universities not signing up with uh, big production, uh, with big publishing companies like yeah. Elsevier, I think. University of California has uh, said we're not going to work with you anymore. So these are one of the big science publishers, Elsevier. And so where will they source that kind of material from? I guess this is part of the radical change that has to happen, I guess. I actually, it was via, via an article, something that Russell Brown linked to years ago. I had no idea, and I was astounded at the sort of money that organizations like Auckland Uni or AUT, you know, pay for those subscriptions a year. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, it's, it's big, big bucks. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I'll introduce you, good sir. Um, my guest today is Nabil Zuberi. Do I pronounce your surname correctly? That's right, yeah. Okay. Zuberi, yes. Yeah. Um, who researches, writes, and teaches about music, media, film, and the politics of culture in the Department of Film, TV, and Media Studies at the University of Auckland, which is um, up the road from where my listeners all know um, I've, I've taught and occasionally researched the past few years. Um, the author of uh, Understanding Popular Music, which is 2010, sounds English, transnational popular music, um, Actually, and the understanding popular music. I don't know why that's still up there. That was a book I was meant to write, and I never wrote oh, it. Yeah, I'm sure. So I, it I'm sure I read it. Bizarrely, I got a. That's why there were no we reviews. Were talking about <laughs> academic public. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were talking about academic publishers, but I this week I got a banks a statement from that publisher saying I had zero royalties for that book, but I never even wrote that book for them. Bizarre. So, uh, you know, they've got some so many processes automated. But anyway, that's no, not you, an excuse you, no, for me not I, having written the book. I think, it's, I think it's a pretty important point in a, in a <laughs> podcast to point out what you actually have, yeah, have yeah, or yeah. haven't done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sounds English, transnational, popular music, uh, media studies in Aotearoa, New Zealand, 2010. And um, you edited uh, Black Popular Music in Britain. Since 1945, um, in 2014, so that gives a bit of a, a, um, a taste, I guess, of your of your research interests and life interests, as well. Um, you originally uh, commented on my Facebook thread about wanting to talk to a refugee who'd um, you know who'd arrived from one destination to another in kind of any era, and this is where I realised, Nabil, that. You know how much I was taught about the history of Pakistan and probably India as well throughout all of my schooling, primary, high school and uni? Nothing. Yeah, actually, I lived in uh, in Britain and in England, grew up there, and we weren't taught anything about that either. So this is, my, you know, one of my big complaints and something that drives my work a lot as well is the fact that... You're omitted uh, from history. Yeah, and just whoever is omitted from history, that the histories we get told are extremely partial and huge gaps and silences. And for me, the silence or the way that it sur surfaces or the way it can be recuperated is really yeah. important. Yeah. Well, then, that I, I, I mean, the bright side of this is it leads me to a, a, a very open question. I did do some reading today, but you were born in if you don't mind me saying so, in 1962 yeah, yeah, that's in, right. uh, in, in, in Pakistan. Then you lived in Yemen before your family settled in England in 1968, um, in, in your words, as refugees. So from A to B to C, 
um, what went on. That, okay, that, so what that, happened? That, yeah, my father was a doctor, and he he, he was trained in. I mean. It's interesting because they're migrants themselves or refugees in a way. A partition, yeah. 1947, when the British leave India British and India and create and India and Pakistan are created. There, uh, you know, the lines were drawn somewhat arbitrarily. But my after riots in Delhi, my mum, my dad's family decided to moved to Pakistan. They thought Muslims were going to be unsafe. Um, from mainland India? From India, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's all on the same continent, so they were all part of one Absolutely. nation. Yeah. But um, the new nation of uh, Pakistan is created, and my parents felt after riots in Delhi that they'd be safer with in a majority Muslim state. So they moved. Um, my mother's family also moved. My dad studied medicine in Lahore uh, in Pakistan and then he, he got a job in the Middle East in Yemen which was Aden at the time it was a British protectorate yeah um and so we were so my mum and dad were there um and I was the first born so my mum took me back to Pakistan to be born there around the family but I grew up mainly in, for the first few years went to nursery school in Aden, but there's a civil war there. So in in Aden, so right. the, like a kind of a you know a colonial war against the British, and they get British decide to leave in 1967. My dad's working as a government doctor, you know, out in the desert mm -hmm. and stuff with local people, and um, he basically mm -hmm. was. It was too violent. The situation was untenable. It was unlikely that he'd carry on his work. So he sent us off to to Pakistan and then went to England. I think I'm following study. this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we, we chased him. We went there to join him there. So in a way, my parents were kind of refugees twice. And I so the went second as a the, migrant, yeah. The, 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 the unrest was in Yemen at the time. Yeah, the unrest was in Yemen, so we went to Pakistan. Uh, yeah. from, we went, sorry, from Yemen to the UK to join my dad, who thought he might be there for a little while or wasn't sure if he was going to settle in the UK. But um, the interesting thing, I was thinking about this based on your, your post, that yeah. like often refugees of a certain... Often they don't call themselves refugees, right? That was my next yeah. question: is what, 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 why do you afford that status to it? So I don't because, because then it was professional yeah, class, you know. Yeah, because yeah, I mean a doctor, but still uh, we we had to move. Basically, yeah, yeah, we were displaced right, right. because of a military situation. Yeah. So, but you know, obviously those things are mixed, and that's something in the debates about what is economic migration versus you know. A, a kind of refugee situation or exile. I think know, if you've got um, no other option than leaving, that it makes you a yeah. refugee somewhere else yeah. by definition. So, uh, you know, but I feel like I should acknowledge that now. I guess becoming aware of the refugee crisis and the way it gets spun in various places politically, right, that one needs to kind of... Uh, I don't want to claim that I have the same refugee experiences as somebody from here or there, but it's important to kind of understand that um, that, that you know, is a condition of people that's yeah. really important, that's, you know, um, as, as important today as it's ever been. So, 
Yeah, I mean, at other times in my life, I've not been a refugee. I've been, a, you know, a educational migrant, I guess, and then, a, and then a migrant worker, settler, resident. You know, you've moved about resident. the place. Citizen, that's for yeah. sure. I feel like you, yeah. after reading a little, it's New Zealand's been the, you know, the longest place you've based yeah, yourself for I know. a while. I've, I've, this is the city that I've lived in longest ever in my life. Yeah, least expected to, but yeah. Auckland has that way of, I, I moved here just through circumstance and wasn't particularly enamoured with Auckland to begin with, to be honest. But yeah, me then you Right, yeah. and then you find yourself, well, for me, gee, is over 10 years later now, because obviously I'm uh, born in New Zealand, but I'm not an Auckland native. But yeah, it's just one of those cities that sort of 10 years later I go, well, you know, a lot of good stuff's happened and I'm working hard and moving yeah. up and, you know. But it, uh, yeah, a couple of questions around um, some of the stuff you've just touched on. I noticed there's a div- one of the divides between Pakistan and India um, early on is, is religion, isn't it? Because Pakistan is predominantly Muslim. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, and so um, were your family very much practicing of the my, faith? Yes, my family were. I think they became more religious, actually, as they hit middle age or as rather as the kid, their kids, their four kids, uh, became te- entered their teenage years, so they became conservative in certain ways uh, and more, yeah, more orthodox. You know, so I was raised as a Muslim and with all the praying, ritual and so on. Yes, like for yes, me, it would have been yeah, reading you know, the yep, Quran, yep. having going to Arabic class and reading Quran every Friday when you didn't want to have another class. <laughs> Um, for the years, yeah. uh, completing the Quran, fasting in Ramadan. Um, at first, not praying five times a day, but by our, my teenage years, I was like praying five times a day. So I sort of really believed, but I had lots of problems with it. I'm not practicing now, so I'm a, I'd call myself a secular uh, atheist Muslim, but, but you know, I'm... I, I'm not a kind of militant atheist. I have a lot of problems with those militant atheists. But you Dawkins still, but, so but, 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 but there's all that fascinating stuff which I'll get to around whether or not you're practicing just by virtue of that religious background and, and your ethnic background. It's a really strong theme in your work because there is so much kind of, um, well, basically misinformation around um, faith, certain faiths and ethnicities, isn't there? Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm interested, like, I was shaped by, in great degree in the UK, by the experience of racism as a kid and growing up, and the way that race and racism get politicised as well. So in the 70s, late 70s, for me, like, punk rock gave me a way of understanding Nation, race, all of that as a teenager. Isn't it funny, a very white yeah. working class? Yeah, that because it was so aggressive and kind of responding to the status quo. Well, it's an underdog as well. You know, that, time, that, yeah. Thatcher's Britain yeah. versus, um, you know, versus yeah. a work, working class. So it was a mix of that and then, you know, two-tone and all of that moment and Jamaican and Afro-Caribbean music and, uh, you know, all of those things helped me to kind of see um, my situation not as not as totally pervasive for so many people in in the UK and elsewhere. So, ra- you know, understanding race, race and social justice, I guess, are important issues in my work. Yeah, and yeah. as I say, getting to the UK from 
the mid sixties through those seventies and eighties, why wouldn't they be sort of yeah, key yeah. and also related to the art because there's such 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 well, I mean it's my taste to, to be honest as well, like that whole era of Britain is really related to a lot of the music I'm I'm into. Um but Me too, yeah. yeah, describe the UK of the I mean it's for me it's textbooks, isn't it? The the UK of the sixties through to the late seventies. Well, we arrived in sixty-eight. Do you remember before that? A little, a few memories, yes. Yeah. But I do remember arriving in the UK very vividly, and all those early years. Yeah, went from colour to grey. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I never thought it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Asia's uh, a very colourful yeah, continent. Yeah, you know? yeah. Right. My dad took loads of pictures. He was an avid photographer, yeah. so. He took lots of great Agfa photos when we were in the Middle East. Good light there. Yeah. But in Britain, yeah, it did go to grey. So, yeah. Um, but it, we arrived this a few months after Enoch Powell had made his Rivers of Blood speech, which was in the West Midlands. And we were in that area. So, you know, where he would, where he said that if uh, immigration continued from the Caribbean and, and Asia, then there would be civil war and rivers of blood in, in the so, UK. So in the so very kind of sparse media environment of that day, you, you had a target put on your head by yeah, some key yeah. commentary. So kids would go, Enoch, 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 you know, like yell at you in the street. And then you'd get, you know, so I grew up with skinheads being around or be, me and my brother getting chased around off the f- football field and, and, lo- and regular abuse at school from people, racist verbal abuse, not much physical. I think I only got into one fight, but a lot of um, that. So that was very much, uh, yeah, part of that Britain. And kind of things were falling apart, right, in terms of the sort of post-war consensus. Um, Britain's in debt. The IMF make them structurally adjust. And um, that's when Margaret Thatcher arrived. So I'm really shaped by that moment of... The right, growth in far right movement, um, you know, um, a, a political crisis. Do you, see history, repeat, you see history repeating exactly. itself? Exactly, I think that's what why, you just yeah. described. You know, yeah. So it's yeah. hard. I mean, everything, every situation's different, it's and bizarre. there are different issues that are maybe more paramount. But you know, like climate change and so on. But there are lots of echoes, and I think one reason I'm listening to a lot of that music again and music that i didn't hear the first time and trying to what's think that about music it. punk or everything around that era yeah, like pu- all the re- all, all the, the reggae yeah, a and lot the, of it yeah, yeah. reggae definitely yeah. reggae punk um you know anything really british pop for, uh, um brit funk as well all kinds of things are happening at the same time uh, one of the things that i'm always interested in actually is the way those stories get told about music uh, and its relationship to the social and political and economic context. We sent, again, we tend to sometimes sediment around a certain set of ideas. And I'm, maybe I'm just awkward, but one of the things I've always tried to think about is like, all right, we, we know this, but is there something we're missing in this story that we've been told? So, you know, that. Moment, Do you mean the, a, na- the kind of narrative for us music, yeah, the, music nerds around how yeah, musical cultural how, how, history. How, how culture and, and, and music? Yeah, how culture and music mingle, but also yeah. the stories we get told about that music or what was important that time, and um, you know, so it's more complex. So I think you know the story of punk is about 
dolcu rock and thatcherism arrives and so on so that's kind of become i'm echoing that but it's sort of become the standard narrative around that period yeah. but i think it's more complicated about the different sort of cultural forces political forces also the music itself what people are listening to you know no absolutely because as as i've already mentioned that, i mean that era particular particularly with the caribbean kind of jamaican yeah. area I, I know that narrative yeah. well and then you make me think of like the hip-hop 70s early 80s narrative in new york which i know really well and yeah. that's right it's all it's all told to me by people trying to do you know a, a good job at the, at the best end of it but i guess like anything the, the deeper you delve into a topic there's a lot of kind of nuance you know yeah yeah well i met this friend of mine casper melville who's yeah. an academic now he teaches i think he's a musician he used to edit the New Humanist as well, a journalist. And he is written, working on a project about 70, I think 77 to 81, and really saying that punk is not the actual, the main thing. It is really, it's kind of Jamaican culture and sound system culture, really. Why does that not surprise me? (laughs) It's the the white man's story. (laughs) The punk is in a way kind of a... It draws on that bigger, bigger current and bigger sort of institutional framework for music and culture, the sound, you know, sound systems. Totally. Even the Northern Soul thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, you, you remind me of a, a, um, a lecture I saw uh, which talked about pioneering studio techniques and in exactly the same era, or maybe a little bit earlier, actually, as you know, people like Tubby and stuff. It was just a, a complete kind of um, jizz over what happened in those Beatles albums, and I was like, you know, this is being presented as like a, this is this is where studio yeah. techniques developed globally, and I'm like, how can you miss? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why know? I like listening to I, I listen to and play on the radio a lot of kind of uh, you know electronic music from elsewhere. You know, sort of like so sixties. Yeah in uh use of kind of um electronic keyboards and things like that in bollywood music in hindi film music or in uh african R- the, uh, r&b or the, in, life, the indian guy know. that invented acid house yeah 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 it's <laughs> a great story uh, you know you know the, how many the, of these are yeah there, you know well like william on on Yebor using russian made synthesizers as well in nigeria you know yeah. a nigerian producer musician that um you know, Luaka Bop, you know, uh, you know, David Byrne's label, they re- reissued a lot of that stuff recently. But he was making this really way out synth disco stuff in yeah. the 70s yeah. at the same time or, you know. It's just who writes it down first yeah, and, and makes the yeah. documentary, right? So, you know, we have got kind of predominantly American, Anglo-American yep. histories. And, um, yeah, that's what's another thing that they need to be questioned internally as well as we need all those other histories and i think like you know those it i mean at uni i teach things like the biopic and documentary yeah it's audio visual stuff and video and websites and social media and now memes right that in a way generate that knowledge or of the past so there is important to look at as ah yes 30 years 30 years summed up in a single frame meme yeah they're (laughs) important to look at as well as uh you know actually going back to older documents and the older archives of 
all sorts of media. So when I think about media, I think about, in, you know, flyers and ticket stubs and photos and promo pictures, as well as, you know, not, not just music video and well, this this is it. We've got a um, yeah. we've got a visual because um, our our a lot of our degree at the moment is going undergoing quite radical change, and yeah, we have a paper that um, is a visual analysis paper that just you know um, with no ill intentions or whatever has kind of slightly morphed into a Hollywood centric kind of narrative film paper. And right. what you just touched on is exactly, you know, some of the issues that were brought up. It's like, well, if this is visual analysis, you speak of memes, yeah. anything through, like what visual is to a student in 2019 yeah. is very different to when I did a kind of classical film analysis degree in 96. You yeah, know? I think I was talking about this with a colleague who teaches at Wintech as well. I uh, sometimes, sometimes get terrified by how quickly yeah. things are moving with young people. Yeah, and I think <laughs> there is a kind of... You know, in some ways we were saying film studies has become like jazz was, you know, to people. Like it's, oh, it's you, that's, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it's sort of people who are into film think that they're very sophisticated yeah. and it's kind of a bit snottier than people who st- study other kinds of media. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not kind of no, trying no, to diss my film sco- yeah. studies scholars and I teach a lot of film studies as well. But I think you need to kind of... What I try and do anyway is try to think about these different media are really all important in the history and in contemporary life in various ways, and they're related to each other. So um, we need to think about that, right? And if, if we know about the ways that we're related to each other, we can think about how culture develops as well. So it's not like a film... A literacy about film is not going to be relevant. But oh, it's, I think, it's, to, it's absolutely. But I think it's you, totally, we need it's to totally, study. It's totally relevant, yeah. but it's limiting. Yeah, it in is terms limiting. Of, in yeah. terms of a, the, yeah. vis, the visual kind of landscape or, or cachet of a, of, a, of an eighteen-year-old in, in two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, I, I also think you need that visual with with audio as well. But if you're going to concentrate on the visual, we can't ignore gifs and no. and the kind of the currency of communication right for most people which is the telephone you know interface and apps and platforms and so you know we do have researchers and are teaching more in that and developing those areas um i think we do that in our film courses as well well, you know well i think what what a healthy i mean if we put our departments side by side you know there's differences in the degree, which is probably nuance, not really that interesting to the average podcast mm, listener. Yeah. Um, excuse me. But what I have noticed, or sorry, what I've um, considered is that um, it's certainly not an area since about 2000 onwards that one can stay still in if you're going to teach. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like if you, yeah. taught, if you taught, I don't know, Greco-Roman history, you, yeah. probably, had, you probably could sit with the same books for yes. a good few decades for a while, you know. But well, this is an area was, where... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was one of the reasons I went into this area. Yeah. I didn't want to do, like, at uni. Re- I, didn't want to, it, yeah. I didn't want to do English because it was too sedimented. I yeah. wanted to do American studies because it seemed more about recent decades. And media studies is 
there is a historical aspect to it, but it is about really responding to the present and the current. Yeah. And what's exciting about it, it's rather like the music world or the music scene. You know, you know that somebody is going to make an amazing piece of music that you're going to want to listen to. Yeah. You're not going to just listen to that Pink Floyd album forever or whatever. You, you saw my post about yeah. upstairs, didn't you? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Oh. Yeah. So I just think <laughs> he there's play, so he, play, much... he, play, he plays the wall really, really loud quite often, <laughs> um, and, and it's a great. It's a, it's, it's a great. Um, sorry, another brick in the wall. You know, you know. Yeah. Great album, granted. Whatever, but but I'm like, how? What is there possibly to to, to juice from that song being played loud in 2019? Like classic rock radio yeah. has has bit. That record with, you know... <laughs> Maybe they've got an axe to grind about education or what education did to them, you know. Yeah. So it's an anti-education sort of uh, rant. It could be. Some it doesn't people stri- appropriate it, it like that. It doesn't strike you know? me. I hope he's not a listener. It doesn't strike <laughs> me as that deep. Hey, um, yeah. you touched on the American studies um, topic, which was actually your undergrad focus, wasn't it? That was your major. Yeah, Um yeah. It's an interesting. I mean, what 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 era? Uh, what year did you embark on that? So that was from eighty four to eighty seven. So I did a. I had. I started. I failed at chemistry miserably at uni. Oh my gosh! So you were one of those. Out. Shall I do science I or dropped, humanities? Yeah, right. and because I was an immigrant kid, it's like do the sensible things. That You're supposed science. to do science. Yeah. <laughs> so I hated it, and all I did was go clubbing and spend my student grant on records, and yeah. I really was miserable. And but. Did you I, have liberal parents in that regard, or were you uh, a bit of a disappointment they, for they, a while? <laughs> I was a disappointment, but yeah. they ultimately supported me yeah. in making that shift. But I went and did A-levels in art subjects. Then I went to do American studies because it was about recent stuff. And I was always in love with American culture, with old films and, uh, you know, that I, Holly, old Hollywood stuff, um, rock and roll cult and music culture, really. So... I always looked to America more than Europe, actually, at that time. I wasn't one of those Euralian kids in the summer. Um, and one of those what yeah, kids? Sorry, you know, like, would too? take the Eurail pass, Eurailing, oh, right. yeah. go off around Europe. You didn't want to go look at castles and stones. No, yeah, or even European <laughs> cities. I yeah. just thought, oh, they're, you know, they're too white. I want to go to America, which I imagined as being this kind of you know mixed paradise and a kind of thing i'd seen in movies and that yeah. you get from music culture you know that fantasy you wanted to sit in diners being, being poured exactly. bad coffee yeah yeah long but so i went to nottingham university and i had a really great program and it was mainly it was sort of three strands intellectual history so the history of ideas that are important in the u.s um history itself uh and um literature which included film as well so people were teaching film they were influenced by new forms of theory and analysis as well like french theory and all that people have to remember that i mean even in the mid to late 90s when i um did my film major like yeah saying anything above and beyond literature would have been kind of radical in yeah, university days. Yeah. because I, I think of a friend that wanted to do a, a, a master's on um religion and hip-hop even in the late 90s and came up just against the misunderstanding wall at Vic Uni, you know, that far down the track. Right. So I guess you yeah, have yeah, your, yeah. your kind of people with film interests, you know, putting slipping think, under the radar of literature. I think it was the, slower here. The, yeah. the kind of take-up, at least in universities and schools to some extent, but things have moved very quickly, I think. 
that there was a it was slower here to take up media studies um yeah. than in say the US or the UK would, had, would, it, would yeah. have been right up my alley um I was an undergrad in 94 to 96 I think the thing started uh, my degree the thing the the communication school which I teach on started mid to late 90s but down in Wellington pre-internet i had said no idea that that such a thing existed you know otherwise yeah i think yeah, a lot of people would have been yeah. would have been suited to it um so was it an esoteric kind of a a major in early 1980s um england uh, american uh, studies not really no? i mean it was there were small programs there weren't that many but there were that some that were quite well established at different a few universities and i'm sure you know probably the cia and the U- u.s State Department would have encouraged American studies and helped finance that to, to some degree. I was lucky. I had liberal teachers, American and British, who were uh, so liberal, uh, but mainly Marxists and Freudians. So they were great. So they really looked at America from a kind of critical and uh, European tradition. Yeah. So in so that introduced me to kind of ideas of culture cultural Marxism, you know, that terrible thing now in Britain um, that's being disparaged by some. But uh, to to really thinking about um, culture and history and how those things connect. So giving a really good framework for for looking at popular culture. And, were, were uh, they, yeah. were that, that, um, in that era, were they, because you just you mentioning Freud makes me think of his nephew, I think it was, the godfather of pr were they kind of critiquing that side of american culture like the huge influence of kind of advertising and yeah, capitalism I mean, which is you know yes. one of the biggest kind of yeah. arguably one of the biggest bothers on the planet now so a lot of that was yeah critical theory there is a critique of of uh, of all of that you know the mass culture mass media yeah uh, the cultural industries the adorno or, or the adorno yeah. and hawkeimer the frankfurt school yeah. sort of approach to how they are producing the ideas that manage society and uh, manufacture consent and hegemony and so on. So that was a really great place for me to get all these ideas and intellectual traditions that made me understand that things are messed up politically, there's all this injustice around, but how do you then think through what's going on in a schematic way? And even your, your interests, how they might fit into that, you know. And so music was my prism through which i music and film and tv and such to some extent but cultural studies were my prism to see to see that you 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 just um beautifully walked into something that i wanted to pick up on from earlier on but i thought we'd gone too far because you went from saying that you arrived in the uk it was a little bleak um you experienced some kind of like racism and bullying um Punk and that kind of mid late seventies era was a bit of a um, you know it, um, uh, a light, I guess. But then around that, because for me, when I started getting into quite radical music, I sort of took in the political messages on a kind of surface level and got them. But I think I was at an age where it was here nor there, kind of to me. So, did you become quite politicised by punk, or was it not until you got to the degree? Um, that you that you sort of felt that sense I was, of awareness. I was I was probably quite politicized quite early because my yeah. parents talked about politics over the dinner table with all of us. We yeah. just talked about that stuff, and they were 
Muslims and kind of conservative in certain social habits, you know, um, but they were also very progressive in kind of, uh, well, they were liberal. Actually, they knew a lot of people from all kinds of communities um, and of all, and loads of artists and so on, but they were also, and musicians, but um, they... They sound had, like interesting but people. But they were very, <laughs> and they were educated, you know, yeah. they went to university and did... Yeah. My mum did social sciences as an adult student at the Open University. So they politicised us. They always kind of made us aware of, like, part, the political parties and, um, uh, and you know, things going on in the world. We talked about the news, you know, every night yeah. and stuff, yeah. I, 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 I was the same. I'm not saying that for a second. Yeah. I was more meaning that I think it's as I've got older that, a lot of these issues have started. I've always had the awareness, yeah. but the deep concern has set in, you know, it yeah, set, it set yeah. in after my late teens, yeah. early twenties, when I was just running around kind of drinking yeah. beer and going to gigs and doing, Yeah, I doing mean, radio. I, hadn't, I hadn't really got a sense. I hadn't got, I was frustrated and angry. And as a teenager, you're kind of those things anyway, right? And so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> punk, well, I think punk really was the first thing that started to give me a kind of set of tools to analyze how messed up stuff was, right? And the aesthetics of it just were like really hit you in the gut and the music was very powerful, was very DIY. Anybody could do it. You know, you could make, you weren't kind of prescribed this British society has this sense of like always, you know, that you can't do anything beyond your class, right? So if anyone, could have, could, if anyone could have done it with their, with their um, South Asian punk bands? Not many. There was. Were one, you going to gigs? The, I was going to gigs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it know, was as welcoming and open the as, they, as, they, as, they, as they say. It in wasn't the that bad. Yep. Yeah, I don't remember actually that. I didn't feel real racism at punk gigs so much. Yeah, there were gigs later where, you know, there were skins and stuff, skinheads and things like that, where it got a bit aggressive. But generally, no, I found that quite welcoming it was uh you know boys and girls you know young men and women those things um well, pretty just, mixed crowd gay straight you know black and white the off yeah, yeah the oft told kind of um but not many crossover Asian, of, yeah. of british of um caribbean kind of djs and so on and and, and the bands but not many asians or no. south asians there there was a band called alien culture that released one single and then i think the main member became a, a financial consultant in the city by the mid eighties. So it was a kind of there was an exemplar of what kind of happened <laughs> went, for many wonder, people. Totally the other side. Yeah. Did you let me see where we ended up after nineteen eighty seven? Yeah, he's probably in the Conservative <laughs> Party, you know, now, right, running for the leadership of the of the party. Um, but yeah, they weren't. Um, so that was strange. But I think there were, and I. You know, that's what I'm interested in doing. One of the areas of research I'm always had in the back and I come back to is kind of the South Asian experience in diaspora in, in America and the UK in particular. But I'm thinking about that here as well. Okay. Um, so in that era, yeah. so in that era, you can, if you're, if you're um, essentially black, which I keep coming back to because that's my yeah. area of knowledge. Yeah. You have the sound system culture, you've got the MC, you know, the DJ, yeah. so on. If you are white, you've got punk. If you're a young 
Asian. musically talented South Asian kid in England in that era. What do you do to um, let that out? Do you just end up being in some traditional? Well, it, you know, no, actually, the, I think the story was there is a quite, scene basically, you know, not at that point. There were various like ethnic scenes that might have been like, you know, our parents' generations, whether you're Punjabi or Bengali or from somewhere else in, you know, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. Um, there would be those scenes that your parents, you know, who played in those scenes or listened or, um, you know, um, contributed to, participated in. I was talking to, to Jinder Singh from Corner Shop a, a few, a couple of months ago in London, interviewing yep. him, and he was telling me how he had gone, basically he learned music through going to the temple, like the Sikh, the Gurdwara, yeah. um, and that's where, in a way, the Bhangra scene that was bigger in the 80s, you know, the Punjabi Bhangra discos yeah. and all that, that so much of that came from that culture as it then turns into wedding events and bands. So an- analogous to how DJ. funk and soul and so on came from really tight yeah. church bands in the US. Yeah, in yeah. a way, yeah. So some of that, but I, for me, yeah. I, but I think the, the story's complicated. It wasn't just these ethnically split things. There's always been punks in the Indian scene, in the, in the, in the, Sorry, they've always been Asians in that punk scene. Yeah. Um, although they might be the drummer or they might be, you know, the bass guitarist in a band. So Let's there were lots of bands that had South Asians or that I realise now had South Asians in them, but we weren't aware of it but always. Then our, yeah. there, there our conversation goes full circle yeah. to earlier on when we were talking about how history is presented because I've watched a, yeah. lot of, a lot of docos. I've read a lot of stuff yeah. about that era and I've not seen, um, well, maybe I have. Um, I, I don't recall seeing um, an Asian presence visually in any of those docos about that era. Yeah, but you, know? you think, what was the biggest biopic of all time? You know, music biopic. Oh, in the world? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, it's Bohemian Rhapsody, right? This, yeah. The film that came out last year. I did not know that Freddie Mercury was an Indian, right? I, I did for um, some reason. I'm I not sure I didn't know how. that in the 70s when Queen were having those hits and I was like... Oh, I get what you're saying. Old. Because it wasn't... So, why, yeah, yeah. Why, why, why market but, that? So yeah, I yeah. was thinking that would have made a difference if he'd been able to... Never mind the fact that he didn't say he was gay, uh, you know, because he couldn't or didn't feel he could. But... The South Asian aspect, his Indianness, the fact that he's Parsi, that was not there, even though he gets called Paki and all of that. You know, you see a bit of that in the movie now um, and, and representations of him. But, um, you know, there's a kind of obscuring of that. So I'm interested. There are lots of people working in many genres, uh, disco music, funk as well, you know. Bidu produced Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. Produced oh, that's going to be in my head for Tina. the next two days, thanks. That, that's, it, <laughs> that's an earworm. You and, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a big disc, pop disco hit by, um, what's, I Love to Love, Tina somebody, I've forgotten her last name now, in 1976 or seven, and Bidu produced that so he was an indian producer who uk had moved we're to talking the uk, UK. Yeah, right. yeah. he'd moved to yeah. the uk in the 60s and was there for a long time went i think back to india to record in the 80s um monochrome set i don't know if you've heard of them a post-punk group heard uh, of couldn't yeah. tell you anything so bid is an indian guy there lots of 
Yeah, so in those fields that even are the whitest of genres, like indie pop, you know, yeah. from the 80s, the Soup Dragons, yeah. Indian drummer, Indi- yeah. British-Asian drummer. Yeah. So um, they're there. And that's why I'm interested, one of the projects I'm doing is on Corner Shop, because they speak to that kind of history and that formation, that they were all of the, all of us other Asians that were into all kinds of stuff. We're yeah. not just into our ethnic brown I, music. Well, no, we're into but, but I hope you just, like, you, just you just worried yeah. you just worried me a little. You, you, I hope you realised that I was that I was more I, I was well aware that all and sundry would have been there. I was think, I was I was pushing more towards you know highlighting how things are represented. So, oh yeah, yeah, you're so vastly re- differently. Yes, you know. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the reason. Yeah, I think that's what I'm. I'm trying to challenge those those views of a mm. kind of a, again, you know, like simplistic histories or histories yeah. that have gaps. Now, <clears throat> what we're talking about sort of feels like it relates, even though this is many years ago, to the PhD topic you turned into a book. Yeah. Is that fair? Uh, but, some of it, yeah, yeah. Some of it did. Yeah. Although I was writing it from a closer point because i was writing doing my phd in the mid 90s early midnight to mid 90s yeah and i was looking at the 80s and and the 90s um and looking at kind of how britishness was sort of what what does britishness and within that really i think englishness mainly i was concerned so the with. first i'm just thinking like i've put supervisor hat on even though i've never been a supervisor yeah. so is the first one of the early questions what is britishness Yes. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Or how is it? How is, for me, it wasn't so much as going, what is it? But what are people what saying is it? it is? What is it? What is it? What's it? Yeah, Wiley should do a thing for Brexit <laughs> on that, you know. But, uh, but yeah, so it was. And that was that time, right? Because of Thatcherism really reconstructing a certain older version of, you know, imperial power and so on. And nationalism being quite important. Yeah. I was interested in using music. So I wrote about, I was a big Smiths fan. So I wrote about Smiths and Morrissey and kind of my ambivalent feelings even then. But basically I wrote about, you know, kind of Britpop and the Smiths and Morrissey within that as white, white Englishness, the yeah. debates of that. Then what was happening in, in black music or yeah. what I call black music then. Yeah. Seems as good as term as any. Yeah. Um, so in like... Um, horrible term but you know trip hop the bristol scene yeah um what's happening in jungle and drum and bass yeah and i guess that sound system culture right and yeah. how it's using new technologies and creating this music that's um saying what it's like to be black in the uk yeah right expressing that through music and then asian stuff as well so i talked about kind of asian rock pop Bands like Corner Shop a little bit, Echo Belly, but then about Asian Dub Foundation, yeah, politics and Asian Dub Foundation and fundamental. Um, Partially Indian, I remember that one. one, The one, yeah, uh, yeah. Nation Records, you (laughs) know, which was the label, and also about, um, you know, also about kind of how rave culture took off. I think I had a chapter in the book called E is for England, which is a that line in. 
the World Cup song that New Order did, you know, yeah. for one of the World Cups for Eng- for the England team. Was that during um, that, that that hedonistic era they slipped that yeah, in? Yeah, it they? was in that kind of loaded like that era. Ebenezer good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like that, but it, but it was sort of how is what were the great po- political possibilities of rave culture? Yeah, um, that you know. Um, some some of which got shut down, but some which sort of expressed real kind yeah. of it were important politically. Well, I, I often yeah. I, th- I often think about that when everyone like that late eighties, early nineties era of the UK when like even you know, reasonably conservative people were on one, as it were. There must be a whole generation of you know yeah. people who who were reasonably enlightened by that experience. But then I guess we've been talking about where. UK's politics and so on have gone, so who knows? <laughs> What's this Brexit up to? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think... It's How a, do you feel about it? Do you feel uh, as far removed I feel far removed very now? anxious about yeah, it. Yeah. So, and the... It's kind of, yeah, so I have, like, various pains in my stomach due to that, and then various things depending on what's happening in the United States with Trump and then other things. Mm. But, but Brexit's been featuring... I think I got really worried... When uh, Joe Cox, the Labour MP, was murdered in Yorkshire, like a couple of months before the vote in June, in May 2016. Um, and, you know, that was near where I grew up in York, one of the places I grew up in Yorkshire. So I knew that area and it felt, even though it was that I'd lived there so long ago, that that was like you know, one of our own people being killed, you know, in the street in broad daylight. So that really made it's me anxious like IRA about where things were going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, so I'm, you know, um, I think, and what my family are all Remainers, you know, are your I folks, guess be, your folks still around. Uh, my dad is not Yeah, yeah He died three uh, almost four years ago yeah. now, but my mum's still around, and I've got siblings. So you will still return from time to time. Yeah, to I do the go UK. back yeah. every year, and I still do research on the UK and UK music, and um, so I go every year. So I'm still very connected to there, as you know. Yeah. The issue would be how do you how do you um, reverse kind of democratic process that has you know. The people have spoken, as it were. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's a quagmire. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess we could... There's arguments to be made about the quality of the democratic process. Was it undermined and so on? Uh, illegal in certain respects. So that's what well, the I people's th- vote people are saying. But I don't think that will... Ha- I don't know if a second... I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know well, if how do you, how do you how do you how do you, how do you How do you proceed forth in any kind of like referendum or yeah. similar public process if you if you go, no, yeah. we don't like that answer. We'll do another yeah. one. We'll do another one. No, wait, wait, wait. We'll do another one. It's, I'm coming it's... around, though I haven't... I'm not an expert. They'll have to kind of offer that, maybe. But I think what will happen is there won't be another vote. I don't think there'll be what another about... vote. Paper, scissors, rock. You could, they could have three. No, they could have... No, yeah, I, yeah. I don't mean... I'm, come on, that would be yeah. silly, paper, scissors, rock. But they could have three referendums, best out of three. Two, two out of three. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, things have moved on. And the point is, there's no... Um, you know, that one could have another vote, a referendum that's properly planned. That was really, like, not a... Didn't have They can at this stage. So, um, the stage. but I think the likeliest outcome is Britain will leave the EU 
And the only thing I, the only way I see things getting better is a kind of real change in the constitution of Britain and like de-Westminsterization of, well, this, of the, of, of, uh, the politics. What, what you said before that I wasn't going to touch on because it's such a, a, a huge topic. I mean, if we look at what's been happening in the US and, and in the UK and, you know, admittedly different contexts and so on, you, you just said, well, maybe there's something with democracy. And it's like, that's such a, it's such a, um, it's such a vast chasm of a topic, but I have considered that. Like, maybe these systems in this era aren't working for us as they arguably might have yeah, better well, before. <laughs> the worrying thing, though, you know? is what then is thought to replace that. I think dismantling democracy and replacing it with something else. Yeah, I, I think when maybe it's... It's not dismantling democracy, actually. It's kind of enabling it, right? If you have a system you, you and then you... Making it healthier. Yeah, healthier. so, you know, making more decision at the lo- more decisions and budgets at the local level. Centralization has been bad, right, yeah. I think. And so people feel detached from London and this, the South. And it's, a very, or, it's a very yeah, big corporation you know. approach to running, yeah. to running society. So I think... You know, I'm. I agree with people like Billy Bragg, for example, who say we should have more assemblies and and kind of make politics more ordinary and localized and um, than it is. I think it has broken though the demo- democracies in many of these states because I think of well, you know, governments basically adopting neoliberal policies mainly. Yep. Um, Greed, corporate, capitalism, corporate, corporate power. Lack of community. Yeah, corporate power and also, um, you know, um, you know, attempt to kind of basically commodify everything in human life. Right? My unashamedly, un- unashamedly political economy approach to looking at everything. But there's something in it. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I that's fundamental. I don't think, uh, I think that's, the Marxism is useful, kids out there listening. Yeah. Yeah. To understand, uh, poli- yeah, to understand what's going on in terms of political economy, that has to be there, even in a cultural. Have you, analysis, have you seen the "I Told You, know? you So" T-shirts? Um, There's a no, great T-shirt no. with um, marks on it with "I Told You So" <laughs> okay. written below yeah, it. That's probably, more, <laughs> but that's too smug for Marks. I yeah. don't think he'd ever be that smug. You know, he'd be going. I told you so, but there's probably the, I have to solve this problem here that doesn't quite fit. So. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think democracy. Yeah, the, uh, what I was saying about the it's worrying right now that there is clearly a breakdown of democracy or and a lack of faith in it because it's so corrupt, right, um, and structurally broken. But the class division, the, the kind of divisions in wealth and access and precariousness of everyday life is much greater. So well, precarious employment is I, defining more of our students like precarious health as well you know in mental health um as well you know all kinds of health um i think are major well, like, issues you know every, everything to a far greater extent than when i was at uni has kind of been monetized and that's a huge pressure you know yeah Just i look at what but i think they are politicized but in different ways I was, you know yeah you know and you can see it in things that they're doing and the way that they're active in social media and making culture the last few years students i've seen 
feel more politicized and concerned than the students I was teaching 2011 to about 2015. Mm. They feel like more the art students of my era. I think because, you know, um, there's the threat to the planet, right? Yeah. Uh, or we're going to destroy, we've destroyed the planet or that, that, or done a really good job at trying to do that. There's also, um, yeah, there's also, I think, um, I'm, you know, like I mentioned earlier on, I think media diet plays a huge part in it. And I thought when it, the students I first started teaching, like there's a very um, reality TV diet, which there still is now, but it really dominated the landscape. So they grew up on like um, that Paris Hilton show and that era of programming. Um, and I think a lot of people, there was a lot more people kind of emulating that than I see happening now. I, I agree with you. I think there's been a shift, yeah. you know, um, they they seem more like sort of yeah a lot more kind of national party kids back in the day yeah well and yeah, that's changed yeah, I yeah. think um, there's less smugness I think amongst you you know like there's always going to be one or two people who are a bit smug in one's classes but there seems to be less of that smug smug vibe from some people and more respect just, for other people's voices in a class and so on part of that also I've kind of noticed is um, when I said it sort of returned to more what I recognise as a traditional BA cohort is there's a lot less kind of cookie cutter similarity. I'm starting to get kind of people who more, more diversity in kind of dress and style and I think that's true because, I think because so. we're at quite different institutions in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, yeah. um, you know, there's yeah, those institutions are always going to be different, but I think um, that it has. Improved. I think probably the 2008 global crisis and what it's done to, you know, the economic prospects and thinking about work and the future. They're getting so woke! On, They're getting woke! Is, uh, you know, that's had some rip effects. So we're probably seeing a generation marked by that, you know. Um, okay, now we're comparing um, crudely written notes on students. Um, done in crayon, <laughs> done in crayon on serviettes. Um, and, they're all uh, no, great. They're all yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They're all fantastic. I love my That's right. Yeah, they're great. Um, so, well, you did say you love teaching at the beginning, which I found heartening because it can be two camps there. Um, but um, attention span—that's the thing that, in terms of, if we're going to talk like pedagogy and teaching, and you know, touching on, I guess, a bunch of stuff we've kind of visited during this podcast. I just wonder whether the the new ways that media is used, the the length of people, the time people engage with things, the amount of devices they engage with. I, I wonder whether the traditional lecture is going to remain in the long term. People are. Just- you know, multitasking and flitting between different screens and attention is moving between things much more. Yeah. I think we recognize that in our own everyday lives as well. Right? Oh, I'm so, shocking, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think that that's what I think a lot of our institutions are doing is trying to address that. There is a place for the lecture still. It does something quite well as a kind of, pedagogical instrument but it should just be one tool among all the others the problem right now which i'm sure you're facing as well is like having a space a design of spaces right teaching rooms that accommodate these different forms in in smaller 
undergraduate teaching and also I've always when I've had a postgraduate class to do is just basically get away as much away from that PowerPoint standard AV delivery and someone at the front of the classroom and just sit around a table I love it Um, that seminar because that's the way I was trained in grad school in America as well was you read something and watch some and watch something usually um talk to your mates who are in the class about it and then went and really intensively looked at that and shoots were smaller as well though it was easier yeah so yeah it's easier to do in with graduate courses you know of like 10 15 and something like that have you have you walked through what's not so new now 2012 it's new for a building have you walked through our new building had a look through our new Building? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, beautiful lecture theatre in the bill. Beautiful room. Lovely room. When you say new, which one do you well, mean? Well, 2012 WG, the one yeah, I'm yeah, in. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one, yeah. <laughs> I've actually gone to a symposium there on right. uh, Afrofu- on Afrofuturism, yeah. So I went there a few years ago. The, building. Yeah. The, 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 the part of the, as you um, responded, I thought the part of the changing attention spans or just changing approaches to learning and life and whatever it is. And I know this has been a problem since the dawn of um, students being set stuff to do in their own time, but I worry that the reading material is getting less and less engaged in and, you know, sort of coming through in assignments and stuff, but I don't know. Yes, that is a challenge, I think. Because uh, they're very big, old-fashioned-looking documents now, but they're very yes, necessary. Yeah. yeah. So I think we, you know, we try and, you know, I think for me, I I think they have to engage with that difficult academic literature as well. Well, how but, else do you get a degree? But also you moderate that with other reading or give them different types of academic writing as well so they can think all right that works for me you know some stuff Adorno and Horkheimer or reading French theory might turn you off but it might actually really turn you on as well so I want to give them different models of academic writing and approaches as well as some quality quality journalism journalism as well yeah and a lot of us at undergraduate level are doing you know one of each say to the students um, getting them to read something that's more meant for a general audience and alongside a more traditionally scholarly article. Hey, if you haven't studied since 1982, stick with us, folks. <laughs> <laughs> this is very sp- specialised. Uh, yeah, we can talk about yeah. <laughs> something beyond the university. Oh, oh, we can, whatever, and we have, we ha- and we absolutely have. Um, record store day. You just said, you mentioned to me you wanted to talk record stores. Full stop. So that we're kind of wide open there. Yeah, well, like, that's because I knew you'd you'd done that stuff yeah. for your PhD, right? Yeah, it seems so, like so long ago. And um, I needed to get your expertise on this right. as well because I'm writing a. A piece on the record store for a a big collection on um, music and place. So I'm friends of mine gave this, this assignment to write a chapter on the record store, um, and I was like, "Wow, that's like my dream assignment." You know, I uh, spent more uh, hours yeah. there than I have in the bathroom or something <laughs> in record stores, practically. Yeah. But it's quite, it, it's sort of imposing. There's a burden of representation because I feel I really have to be true to the 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 institution and the place of the record well, store. Well, when you yeah. say record store and place, that kind of sounds like a large element of my PhD, but what are you, is it about a particular record store or your experiences of no, record I stores? No, I think what or? I'm trying to do, because it's like written for a 
kind of a companion or a handbook, then I have to be general or try and get an overview of this thing called a record store, right? Yeah. So I think the first place I sort of started off was trying to think about, well, what is it that we actually call a record store, a record shop? You know, I think in a way because of the, one of the, firstly, I think because they're dying, right, in general. Strong uh, word, you know, but yes. Or, yeah. or becoming less and less important, fewer and fewer. We need to think about, well, what actually has constituted a record store? So... The, the vision historically or since yeah. since because well, funny since, it's funny you use yeah. that term because I touched on that in my research was that you know the power of kind of language like there was an article not that say this wouldn't happen anyway but there was an article published called the death of the record store and that became part of the lexicon for many oh, years is right, right, like yeah. you know there's a sort of they're, they're dead they're dying it's sort of like a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy so there's a, a problem way. with that but yeah. that's what so I think I start my essay with something somebody said to me when i was saying i was writing this like um do are they do they still exist record stores and this was somebody saying it seriously rather than facetiously so um but i think that discourse has tended to dominate so there is a problem with that and now what i was trying to think about is if we look at the history of the record store we might think of all these quite diverse spaces as, in some ways, record stores. So, well, they, from yeah, the department store. That's right, and they all, in terms of, know, in terms of what you're focusing on about them and or the value of them. There, that's right. There are very different stores. I certainly wasn't writing about like, I don't know, putting myself on the spot here, um, ha- hanging out at kind of JB Hi-Fi. When I spoke, yeah, when I spoke yeah. about the social aspects, not that there aren't those there, yeah. But but I don't know. You got to be very careful with that topic that it doesn't become a. And I know you'd know this as a as a competent academic, but that doesn't become kind of an exercise in nostalgia. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not going to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Why I was thinking historically is that I think the the fact that independent, partly record store day is to blame. I think, but but. And the fact that... Hang on, what are we blaming things for? Well, not blame. (laughs) What's died? What are we blaming things for? (laughs) Partly because of um, the, you know, so many memoirs, so much representation of independent stores. You know, look, you go to videos online. Yeah. And and that's great because I think independence and not being a corporate, you know, music retailer is, is important. But that has also obscured the kind of range of different places where people have bought music and listen to it and socialized around it so that can be the stall in an indian market yeah or the sunday market in selling bootleg cds yeah in mexico city or yeah. it can be the department stores where they try to recreate salon listening right and Is women this in living, in living memory well no in the, i mean people who've written about early recorded music and records shopping and selling have said oh, the record were, bars and yeah, department stores. Yeah. In department stores, yeah. women were actually the ones mainly selling records to mainly other women consumers. So we tend to have this view of the the view of the record store is a bit dominated right now by the high fidelity, the middle aged guys and young guys yeah. um, occupying the you know an independent record store because that's got the most romance and hype around yeah. it and that's really important and has lots of pleasures but i think one of the things i wanted to get to is like 
the record store will survive in some new form. They've constantly been changing their coffee bars, their restaurants, their... There, I went to. I've been to. Yeah, you've got. You need something yeah, else. I mean, a pasta bar and a. And and li- I mean, real groovy. I mean, you can't. They I mean they do it tough. I mean, they've moved three times since I've lived yeah. here. But they are, you know, an example of of a place that, that, that does just that. And I guess actually, maybe Auckland's not a great example because because Southbound are as well. But yeah, you want to be, um, you know, like in the case of what Kyan's got in Raglan now. He's got you know some of his partners' art as well as the records. Yeah. Or you want to like cut someone's hair while they're there. There's like a great kind of. <laughs> You know, yeah, like a great barber, yeah, or there's yeah. a, there's got to be other. In terms of the social aspect, that's really important. This is the way I see it, anyway. Yeah. The social aspect that's really important, not just because they're shutting down, but particularly now that we are arguably less social creatures overall. You know, you know something else. It, it's not a. It's yeah. It's not a, just about that um, buying of music, romanticism of buying and selling yeah. music. It's, it's yeah. to me, it's about we. And and I never expected my work to be about that either it's about my interest was in like we're kind of losing physical social spaces absolutely um, I agree either either a who cares um or b how does this change yeah. us yeah. i was thinking about record store day which i have really ambivalent feelings about because i want the record stores to be promoted and to do well but there's also this kind of frenzy of it as a, it's like a bit of a sales day like you know and, and yeah. kind of manic consumer behavior but I and the, realize, and the majors kind of for people who yeah. don't know the majors kind of repressing heavy versions, you know, thick vinyl versions of kind of dad yeah, records, all of that tying but up I, the presses. Yeah, yeah. But in the morning, like I, you know, got ready, went out early, and I was thinking about it. Like today, I'm going to meet these people. It was about the socialising. Yeah. I was going to go to Conch first and hang out there and meet friends and DJs and people selling records and talk about music Absolutely. or whatever it's else. It's always like, who's, yeah. out, who's out the front yeah. there? And probably yeah. nine times yeah. out of ten, I'll know one of them. You yeah. Know? yeah. So I also, the other thing that I'm interested with record stores is that they are, as social spaces, they're these weird, like, they're like sort of time machines. They're kind of libraries. They're, you know, these weird archives that have been ordered by the... In sometimes in pretty standardized ways, but also idiosyncratic ways by the owners or depending on where they are. And like you're exposed to so much other sort of knowledge, you know, you get to see bands sometimes there. Yeah. you get to read interesting zines and you bring you bring you bring up another thing probably especially now. Like, you know, a lot of them I don't like the atmosphere of. I don't particularly like sort of um a grumpy old guy. And you know, a lot of it's about whether it's a record store or, I don't know, um, a panini shop. It's about the attitude to how the business is run. Yeah. So if you want to preserve those elements around what we've been talking about, you've kind of you've got to have a proactive owner that... Yes. Sort of, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm not, I think it was a great line from, from Chris, who I'd never met before the PhD, who came into one of the data sessions. I can't remember it was, whether it was the one that you, anonymous participant, were in as well. But um, he said something like... You know, well-run record stores are really good, but some of them ride a fine line between business ownership and a mental health issue. And I just, right. I just really funny because I just pictured the kind of like the shop that should should have shut years ago, and this poor guy somehow is holding on to it and paying the rent. And yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, I think that is vital like what kind of atmosphere yeah. um and i was i mean i don't read much of this sort of business um 
management MBA type literature. But when I was doing a literature search for kind of music retail, there were lots of people writing in in that in that area about kind of mood enhancement and how do you create yeah. the right space in which people will you know consume the correct, the correct aroma for yeah uh, consume uh, you know the sort of design of the of the space as well so that is that's fascinating i guess you can only i mean i can just talk to how they operate in different places and what's wonderful is how record stores are so varied right I you go only, to yeah. you go to one record store that feels like you're in a monastery it's so the walls are black you know in yeah. berlin space haller black walls you can look at rows and rows of techno and house records and it's sort (laughs) of a bit like you're in a in a in a laboratory um whereas others are more like you know djs going or the people behind you behind the counter telling you yeah that's that that classic sort of jamaican model like throw them down i'll take that i'll take that yeah yeah you'll you'll like this if you like that listen to this check this out so um we're nearly there amazing 80 minutes um you've revisited me thinking about well you've made me revisit thinking about my phd which i need to do because i've just got we don't have tenure in New Zealand, but a full-time gig where I am. Congratulations. We're researchers. I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but thank you. Yeah, that's <laughs> we're, great. Yeah. We're, um, we're researchers now, very much an ongoing role in my um, job. And you kind of terrified me a little before when you said you kind of went straight from your PhD to writing your book. Like I'm faced with a problem at the moment where I finished my PhD in 2016 and I've published one article, but... um. I can't even bring myself to do research at the moment. Like, have you had have you had periods over the years where you yeah. get off that bike and I just need some advice yes. to be? Or yeah, how I, yeah, no. How do I, 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 yeah. Did, I did an MPhil and a PhD, yeah. and I was, I was feeling quite guilty about it around work. And one of um, one of my kind of superiors, well, colleagues, and friends said, "You've just done a PhD and, a, and an MPhil. Don't be so hard on yourself." Yeah. But then three years have passed now, and I've been lately in the last few weeks really, um, yeah. Feeling a kind of guilt about the fact I can't. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> a, and it, this is the situation of academia as yeah. well, right? That it 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 makes us anxious in those ways because yeah. even though you're working full tilt in these different areas, um, something gives, and then you feel anxiety about it. I mean, but I, then there's I'm nothing the worse than frittering yeah. away all this time. And like, well, you oh. haven't frittered it away. I think the thing is that, I mean, I. I'll well, tell I think you if what you look happened. On Facebook, you yeah, realize yeah. I'll I have. tell you what. What? Yeah, you do fritter away time. I do that as well. <laughs> but I think the thing is that I, when I finished my PhD, I came here with that having that got me the job here, right? That I'd got a PhD in yeah. America and had taught a fair amount yeah. while doing the PhD. Um, so when I got the job here, um, I knew that in order to get out if, to leave the job i'd have to publish quite a lot so yeah. in a way the book from something i'd already done was was what do you mean to get out of auckland? to get out of auckland new zealand or <laughs> move yeah right, yeah because i imagine i'd be here for three years yeah. and then move away you know back to the states or somewhere else so i was in a real desperate hurry to to get that done right um I was you, you, also you had teaching. A f- f- flame like, under your ass, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also had a full teaching load, but I was really stressed. And after I did that, got the book out, 
I almost moved back to the States, but then decided to stay. Then I just went and I was still, you know, teaching a full load and everything. But I went, listen, I, you know, I can only do, I've got to come to terms with how much work I actually want to do or will get done. Um, now that you have research, now that you're a researcher and someone who's going to get funded for it, then, you know, it's an opportunity to do that. Yeah. But, and then, you know, it depends on, um, I guess, planning <laughs> what you really want to do for, yeah. the, for that while, right? Yeah. Like what the projects are that that are sustainable in the institution that, and for you personally. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I don't get too boffany for our for our listeners again, but yeah, I, I'll talk to you a bit more after. But I even worry about the other piece, major piece of work I did was 2012, and there's been no articles from that, and that's a long time. You don't want something to kind of go stale. Yeah. Before we wrap up, Nabil, you one last thing I want to touch on. I think you've basically um, sounds like the, the 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 way you ended up here was there was a job advertised in New Zealand which you took. Yes. That, yeah. yeah. Why did you end up staying? Um, well, my partner also <laughs> is working here. So yeah. for both of us to move, it would be hard. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got, we've made friends here. Um, we like, you know, the air and the environment. Yeah. And we've always been part, we've always had really good colleagues. And the hard thing about it, you know, good everyday workmates. The hard thing is it's not the most vibrant yeah. city in the world. The hard thing, yeah. But as you get older, you don't care about that so much, oh, right? I could do with a Notting Hill kind of thing once a year. We've got enough diversity yeah. here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but I think it's when I, the more, as the years have gone by, the more New Zealand seems sane and moderate and um there are lots of problems here but um yeah there's a kind of relative sanity um, and distance <laughs> yeah the distance is bad but no it's, uh, it's good it's good sanity. for kind of what you're talking yeah. about if it all goes to custard yeah and i've traveled and been in other places so for me uh, as long as i can leave regularly I'm, yeah. I'm happy to live to live here the quality of life everyday life is is really good you know thank you sir that was a great conversation and thanks for coming in thank you for inviting me